Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On to part two of episode 40 of hypertension in the emergency department. Part one, we talked about asymptomatic hypertension and minimally symptomatic hypertension. And now we're going to go on to talk about the true hypertensive emergencies and some other interesting hypertension-related conundrums. A 40-year-old man with a past medical history of hypertension and hypothyroidism was brought into the ED by ambulance with increasing confusion over four hours, according to his wife. When you go see him, he appeared slightly agitated with a GCS of 13. His blood pressure was 240 over 140 with a normal heart rate, respiratory rate, and temp. Glucose was normal. He had no focal neurologic deficits and his fundi were difficult to visualize. An ECG showed signs of LVH. Dr. Atsuma, at this point, what would your differential diagnosis be for this patient? Well, given his blood pressure is 240, I want to recheck that and make sure that really is the case. And obviously that's going to move me into hypertensive encephalopathy on the top of my differential. Uh, Other things to consider would be encephalitis in a young patient who's confused without localizing signs, sepsis, if there's an ischemic stroke, if it's big enough, it's possible, although not very likely, endocrine causes, and of course toxicological causes in a young person. There could be sources there and also withdrawal. So those are things I would consider, although, you know, with a blood pressure like that, you know, you're lucky if you get that right off the start because it can really hone your differential. Okay. So this patient had a CT that was read as negative. So that rules out all the intracranial hemorrhage. Ischemia generally. Yeah. So certainly then you're going to be going more down that pathway of hypertensive encephalopathy because that's what you would generally see on CT, although there are some specific findings that a radiologist might be able to catch, but I in my CT reading skills, would not be able to catch. And certainly his presentation sounds consistent with hypertensive encephalopathy because they're usually, you know, high blood pressure, headache, nausea, and then as they progress, they get restless, they get combative, they get confused. And so he's pretty classic so far. This patient was given IV labetalol, his pressure came down, and then his confusion resolved. So that essentially confirms your diagnosis, if it's resolved, just with lowering of the blood pressure. So this patient has hypertensive encephalopathy. Dr. Yaffe, before we get into dealing with the true hypertensive emergencies, can you give us a quick rundown on the pathophysiology of true hypertensive emergencies and how they actually cause end organ damage in general? Sure. You know, I think it's important to recognize that hypertensive emergencies are a pretty heterogeneous group of disorders, so there's not one pathophysiology. I like to group them into two those affecting things on a microvascular level and those affecting things on a little bit larger vessel or or macro uh, circulatory level. So the microvascular disorders, these are a group of disorders with kind of an acute vasculopathy, and that would include hypertensive encephalopathy, uh, malignant or accelerated hypertension, preeclampsia or eclampsia, and another weird disorder, scleroderma renal uh, syndrome. But these are all uh, disorders where you have a really high blood pressure, your normal autoregulation is overwhelmed, and you get uh, the capillary beds are exposed to very high pressures. Uh, you get endothelial damage, and with that damage, you get local uh, capillary leak, but more importantly, you get a release of a lot of inflammatory uh, mediators. The renin angiotensin system is really ramped up, and you get a vicious cycle of hypertension and more hypertension and more inflammation. And the only way to stop this is by treating the blood pressure. So that's the common group. And with all of these, you get some pathologic changes, fibrinoid necrosis, but it's just important to recognize that this is a microvasculatory problem. Uh, the other groups are larger vessels. So if you take aortic dissection, congestive heart failure with severe hypertension, uh, and even the strokes and intracranial hemorrhages and subarachnoid hemorrhages, we're trying to decrease the pressure effects on larger vessels, and they're a very, very uh, disparate group. 
So this patient has a blood pressure of 240 on 140 and was diagnosed with hypertensive encephalopathy after his symptoms improved with IV libidolol. Let's just back up a bit and look into when would you suspect hypertensive encephalopathy in the first place? Okay, so good question. Um, I think most people with hypertensive encephalopathy, first of all, a lot of these people have a history of hypertension and have been treated with that. So if you get a history of hypertension not taking their medications, uh, alteration in the level of consciousness, I feel way more comfortable if I see grade three or four uh, retinopathy. Um, however, uh, it's not clear that they have to have this. Focal findings are unusual, so it's usually a global disturbance in, in level of alertness, but you can't have seizures. So you're basically getting any association with severe hypertension. That's when I would suspect it. And although there's not a specific confirmatory test, I think if you're going to make the diagnosis of hypertensive encephalopathy, you need to have a negative CT before starting treatment, unless that's really, really, really not accessible. In eclampsia, which is kind of a form of hypertensive encephalopathy, you could probably make that diagnosis without a CT. But I think in your average non-pregnant person, you'd want to have a CT. Because you don't want to rapidly drop the blood pressure in case it turns out to be an ischemic event yeah. or hemorrhage yeah. in the brain. We're going to get on to exactly how to manage the blood pressure in those kinds of patients. Um, but in the hypertensive encephalopathy, you can confirm the diagnosis with a negative CT, or sometimes the radiologist will see bilateral hypodensities, but that's usually not something that we're going to pick up. And then once you treat the patient's blood pressure, if their symptoms resolve, then that clinches the diagnosis. Dr. Atsuma, what would your target blood pressure be in this patient with hypertensive encephalopathy, and what medication would be your drug of choice? So for these patients, the goal blood pressure is a diastolic blood pressure of 100 to 105 within two to six hours. So it's rapid, but not that rapid. And you do not want to have an initial fall of blood pressure when you, when you first give them, in this case, labetalol, of more than 20% of the first value. So that's with hypertensive encephalopathy. Let's get on to talking about IV antihypertensives that we use in the emergency room in general. What are the general principles we should go by when considering rapid blood pressure reduction in the ED? So the first principle is that it probably should never be rapid other than a few very specific situations, one of them being aortic dissection. And I don't think even hypertensive encephalopathy should be rapid. It's within two to six hours. So in general, we don't want to be rapid except those situations. That's point number one. Point number two, if you need to remember a number, 25% seems to be a really good number uh, to commit to memory in terms of how much you want to bring the blood pressure down by for most hypertensive emergencies. So for eclampsia, for, for CHF, you, you, or for strokes, you don't want to reduce the blood pressure by more than 25%. Um, even 20% is probably good because, again, remember, we're trying not to induce ischemia into those organs that are used to seeing a lot more blood pressure. And if you suddenly drop them, you can cause any organ to become ischemic. So that's point number two is kind of 25%. Point number three is it obviously fairly simple, but the therapy is directed towards whatever the precipitant of the specific organ damage so if the problem is increased catecholamines because they're on an MAOI and now they're going way up, you need something that's going to block the catecholamines or phentolamines. So you want to think about exactly uh, what the problem is and how to reverse that specific issue. And the last point is that a symptom resolution is probably one of your best gauges of whether or not your, your therapy is effective. So look at the patient. Don't just look at the numbers. I've heard that before. So let's go on to talking about the pharmacotherapy for hypertensive emergencies. Can you give us an overview of how the different IV antihypertensives work to help us decide which ones to use? Sure. In Canada, we actually don't have a lot of the drugs, so perhaps that makes our decision a bit more simple. And there's three major groups. We have the beta blockers, the vasodilators, and the calcium channel blockers are, that are available in an IV form for us to use in hypertensive emergencies. So I'm going to start with beta blockers first because I feel like labetalol is my go-to drug for most things. And so that's what I want to uh, mention first. It's great for the head. It's safe in pregnancy and preeclampsia. You need it in dissection, some kind of beta blocker. 
And of course, the other option is Esmolol. Now with labetalol, in general, in a hypertensive emergency, you're going to give it 20 milligrams over a slow push, and then every 10 minutes, you're going to double that. So 20 milligrams, 40 milligrams after 10 minutes, if you haven't gotten to whatever your goal is, 80 milligrams, and you're going to stop at 300. That's your max. And your goal is, in general, to get that heart rate down, something like aortic dissection to 60. So that's how you give it. Um, It should be used in caution with patients with hepatic failure and, of course, patients who have reactive airways like asthma or COPD. Like any beta blocker, you still have to think about those things. Esmolol is very quick onset and quick offset. And it can be used in patients who have reactive airways, at least according to the guidelines, I've never used it, but who don't have severe asthma or severe COPD. So the idea is that even if you cause a bit of reaction there, you can turn it off and it's gone very quickly. So you can try it in someone with mild to moderate asthma or COPD. Um, So those are the two beta blockers that are commonly used. Vasodilators include uh, nitroglycerin, which is a venodilator. So your capacitance vessels open up and we love to use it in uh, pulmonary edema. We can use it in ACS. It also is a weak arterial vasodilator. So it opens up your arteries a little bit after a certain level. So at 60 mics per minute, then you're getting into um, arterial vasodilation as well. But before that, it's really just venodilation. And then the other big one is nitroprusside, which affects both your arteries and your veins to open them up. And actually, in CHF, it may be more effective because now the heart doesn't have to pump against such a high pressure in the arteries, but we generally don't like to use it so much because of the cyanide toxicity issue. So one of the breakdown products is cyanide, and your body can only clear that so fast. And of course, if you have renal failure in those patients, they're even less likely to be able to clear it. The dose for these patients, I would generally start at 0.5 mics per minute, and go up to two mics per minute, maybe a little less in someone with renal failure. The FDA says no more than 10 minutes at 10 mics per minute because you know they're going to get cyanide toxic. But I think it's a good drug. You have to make sure your IV is really well in situ and it's not going to go interstitial because you can have a bad reaction from that. You have to have it mixed properly. You have to put tinfoil around it so there's no sunlight hitting it, but it can be very effective. Uh, The onset's pretty quick and as is the offset. But I would probably max out at two mics per minute because of the whole cyanide issue. Other vasodilators, there's hydralazine, which used to be the first line for obstetricians dealing with eclampsia or preeclampsia. It's maybe not quite first line anymore because it's a little bit unpredictable in terms of the the blood pressure drop, but certainly something that is still used. It's a direct arterial vasodilator, and it also increases the heart rate, so not so good in someone who's uh, having an AMI, for example. And then the last one in the vasodilators is phentolamine. So it works on those alpha blockers, again, alpha 1, to open up your arteries. It is great in the setting where there's a lot of catecholamines around. So the MAOI, toxicity, someone with lots of cocaine on board, uh, pheo. So you're trying to block those catecholamines from getting to the end plate, but not so effective otherwise. So those are the four vasodilators, nitroglycerin, nitroprusside, hydralazine, and phentolamine. And lastly, we have the calcium channel blockers. A calcium channel blockers is throwing you back to pharmacology in the non-dihydropyridines, which would be dilton and diltiazem and verapamil, and the dihydropyridines, which are amlodipine, most commonly nifedipine, and nicardipine, which we can't get here in Canada, uh, but they have them elsewhere. Um, nicardipine is purportedly very effective, but I'm not going to go over it in detail because we can't get it here, uh, but it has... Lots of indications where you can use it in the same place as labetalol if, uh, if you can get a hold of it. The one point I would make about nifedipine, good for treating hypertensive pregnant patients, if you use the long-acting form. Never use the short-acting form. You can drop the blood pressure quite precipitously with short-acting nifedipine and cause ischemia. Those are the major groups. I should also add uh, nimodipine is another one you may have heard of. That's for patients who have a subarachnoid and you want to stop vasospasm. It's not really directed at the blood pressure. It's after you've had a bleed in your brain to prevent the vasospasm happening afterward. Nimodipine is used, but it is used days after we see these patients. So you don't really need to commit this one to memory. Vasospasm in general never happens more than three days after the event. So they're long gone from the eMERGE, hopefully and on the neurosurgical ward when they start the nimodipine, and it's quite effective. The nimodipine is not a specific antihypertensive. It's more for the vasospasm. Exactly. Okay. So let's review what we've learned up until now. First, how do you diagnose hypertensive encephalopathy? 
These patients usually have a history of hypertension and will have a significantly elevated blood pressure on presentation, usually over 180 on 110, with a relatively acute onset of headache, nausea, vomiting, which then progresses to confusion, altered level of consciousness. Usually some fundoscopic findings of a grade 3 or 4 retinopathy can be found with no focal neurologic findings and a normal CT head. And then when they're given an antihypertensive, their clinical picture will usually improve, which clinches the diagnosis. Don't start antihypertensives until you've got a negative CT on a patient that you suspect has hypertensive encephalopathy, because if the patient has a bleed and is not hypertensive encephalopathy, then you can do more harm than good by rapidly decreasing the blood pressure. The goal is a diastolic blood pressure of between 100 and 105 within 2 to 6 hours. And don't drop the BP more than about 20% in the first hour. Our experts recommend labetalol as the first-line medication for hypertensive encephalopathy. There are four principles when it comes to using IV medications to lower blood pressure in the emergency department. 1. Never rapidly reduce blood pressure except in aortic dissection. Your target should be about 20-25% to reduction maximum so as to avoid inducing ischemia. The therapy should be directed to the precipitant of the end organ damage, and symptom resolution is your best gauge of how the patient is doing rather than the particular numbers. Treat the patient, not the numbers. What about the particular IV antihypertensives? There's three categories to think about. First is the beta blockers. Second is the vasodilators, and third are the calcium channel blockers. Let's talk about the beta blockers first. Labetalol is given in a 20 milligram slow IV push, and then every 10 minutes you double it to a maximum of 300 milligrams. Remember to be careful in patients with liver failure and reactive airways. Esmolol is another beta blocker that's even faster onset than labetalol, and probably safer than labetalol in patients with reactive airways. Next is the vasodilators. Nitroglycerin is mostly a venodilator and only arteriodilates at a dose of higher than 60 micrograms per minute. That's important to remember. Next, there's nitroprusside. It's both a potent venodilator and arteriodilator. The dose you start at 0.5 micrograms per minute and titrate up to a maximum of 2 milligrams per minute. Be careful in patients with renal failure as they have a higher risk for cyanide toxicity with prolonged use of nitroprusside. Next is hydralazine. Hydralazine is a direct arterial vasodilator and will increase the heart rate, so it's to be avoided in things like ACS. It causes an unpredictable blood pressure drop and so is no longer the first line for preeclampsia or eclampsia. Phentolamine is the other venodilator. It's an alpha blocker that dilates arteries and is good for blocking catecholamines like cocaine or in a patient who has pheochromocytoma, for example. Lastly, we have the calcium channel blockers. In the calcium channel blockers, there's the non-dihydroperidines, which are diltiazem and verapamil, which we're quite familiar with because we use it in rate control for AFib all the time, and the dihydroperidines, and that's amlodipine, nifedipine, and nicardipine. There was a review by the Cochrane Collaboration in 2009 called Pharmacological Interventions for Hypertensive Emergencies, and they sought to answer two critical questions when it comes to hypertensive emergencies. One, does antihypertensive drug therapy, as compared to placebo or no treatment, affect mortality and morbidity in patients presenting with a hypertensive emergency? And two, does one first-line antihypertensive drug class, as compared to other antihypertensive drug classes, affect mortality and morbidity in these patients? Dr. Yaffe, can you just review for us the results they found in this Cochrane collaboration review? So the, uh, the Cochrane group 
you know, looked at a whole bunch of studies, found 15 RCTs that they felt were worthy of looking at. It comprised about just under 900 patients. And the the short version is that there was no RCT evidence that demonstrated that antihypertensive drugs reduce mortality or morbidity in patients with hypertensive emergencies, number one. And number two, they found that there was insufficient evidence from RCTs to determine which drug or drug class was most effective in reducing mortality and morbidity. You know, I think you have to put Cochrane in perspective. A lot of times what it can do is identify areas that we need to look at a little more closely in subsequent research. So it's not surprising, I think, that in this large group of disorders, which I already mentioned were were very different from each other, that we're not going to find one drug better than another drug. And frankly, it it might be hard in in these pretty rare disorders to find a reduction in meaningful endpoints. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't treat, and it doesn't mean that there may not be some decent expert opinion on which drug is better than another. Dr. Atsuma had mentioned 20 or 25% decrease in the blood pressure as, as a starting point over the first few hours. Do you have anything to add about that? So that 20 to 25% uh, in the first hour, that's the maximum allowable. And a lot of times we should feel comfortable with less than that. Serially observe the patient, not just as Claire said, that they're getting better, but that they're not getting worse, which can happen if you're off the mark. You know, and this is really, really important because I can guarantee you when you get patients with this kind of blood pressure, somebody's going to be coming to you every 15 minutes and letting you know that the blood pressure is not better yet. So you need to you need to have some realistic goals and you need to be really patient. It's interesting that that all and we we've all heard this and all of the books say that aortic dissection is a a bigger emergency that we should try to get that blood pressure down within 10 minutes. I have to say that uh, in my own experience is that often I suspect the diagnosis. It takes me a couple of hours to confirm it. And in that interim, I'm a little bit reluctant to start treating the blood pressure in somebody that might really be having an ACS or some other ischemic episode. So, you know, it's nice to practice, but I, uh, I'm i not seeing people charging in and uh, reducing that blood pressure on spec. Once you've made the diagnosis, different story, and you can probably be more aggressive. But pre-diagnosis, it's a bit of a challenge. Mm. Can you just expand on that? That's a good example you're trying to decide between ACS and maybe a possibility of aortic dissection, what would be the disadvantage of treating that blood pressure if they were ACS and not a dissection? So remember, uh, the target blood pressures in aortic dissection are pretty low. Uh, If you take somebody who's got an ACS, that may be their normal blood pressure. And so dropping it could be a real issue. And I think I'm not sure I'd want to go there in somebody who's got an acutely ischemic myocardium. Those coronaries need that blood supply, and if you drop it down to 120 and they've been sitting at 180 for a long time, then you're just going to make things worse. First, do no harm. Right. That old oath. So while this Cochrane review in 2009 concluded that no IV antihypertensive is better than the next, there has been some subsequent literature that suggests for particular situations that some meds might be better than others. And there's also a lot of expert opinion out there over what medications might be better than others. How do you choose which antihypertensive to use in the emergency room? So I'm, again, a simple guy. My go-to drug tends to be labetalol for just about everything except for acute congestive heart failure. So I would give labetalol for everything. If the person could not tolerate a beta blocker, I'd have to individualize things a little bit more. That's my simple approach. Amen. It's good to know one drug, feel comfortable with it, have a sense of what it's going to do, what it's not going to do, and what kind of trouble you may get into. And I think this is one of those cases. Which IV antihypertensives are best for hypertensive emergencies? Well, the Cochrane collaboration in 2009 concluded that there was no good RCT evidence that antihypertensive drugs reduce mortality and morbidity 
and that no one drug is better than another for hypertensive emergencies. There has been some literature since that has shown some advantages of one drug over another. For example, nicardipine, which has a short onset but a relatively long duration of action and promotes cerebral and coronary vasodilation, has recently been shown in the CLUE RCT, the C-L-U-E, CLUE RCT in 2013 out of BMJ, to be superior to labetalol in treating acute severe hypertension in emergency department patients, including those with end organ damage and also in critically ill patients. Nicardipine was associated with less hypotension, less bradycardia, and less atrioventricular block, resulting in a lower rate of drug discontinuation compared to labetalol. Nicardipine is also more likely to reach your blood pressure goal in less than 30 minutes when compared to labetalol. Whether nicardipine saves lives compared to other antihypertensives is unknown, and unfortunately, we don't have nicardipine here in Canada. Dr. Yaffe's go-to first-line drug for most hypertensive emergencies, except CHF, is labetalol. Give 20 milligrams and double the dose every 10 minutes until symptom resolution or target BP, or until you've reached a maximum of 300 milligrams. The maximum allowable decrease in blood pressure with antihypertensives in the ED should generally be no more than 20 to 25% over a few hours, except in aortic dissection, where the faster you get the blood pressure down, the better. Case number four, your resident presents you a case of a 52-year-old woman with a known history of hypertension who presents to the ED with a gradual onset of bitemporal vague headache and fatigue for two days. She's been non-compliant with her antihypertensive medications in the last six months and doesn't remember their names. On exam, her blood pressure is 212 on 120. Her vitals are otherwise normal and her cardiovascular and neurologic exams are unremarkable. Sound familiar? This is the same case as case two, except this time your resident orders a creatinine and it comes back at 285. So we've talked about the value of doing a screening urinalysis and creatinine for patients with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic hypertension in the ED. Let's say you do discover that a hypertensive patient has a really high creatinine. Dr. Atsma, how do you treat these patients and how do you decide on their disposition? So I think this is a great point of discussion because in all the guidelines, it's very clear who's having a hypertensive emergency and then there's everyone else that we see in the ED. But one of the many criteria for a hypertensive emergency is severe hypertension with acute renal failure. The rest of them, severe hypertension in a pregnant woman with symptoms like preeclamptic symptoms or a dissection, they're pretty clear. But acute renal failure, how am I as the emergency physician who's never seen this patient before to know that it's acute? Maybe their creatinine last month was 250. And so I feel these are the patients where I am not that sure if that really is a hypertensive emergency. In a patient where I don't have a previous creatinine, uh, or they say, I do have some troubles with my kidneys, I don't know what my numbers are, I don't think I would consider that a hypertensive emergency unless there was something else going on. I mean, it kind of depends how high, if they're uremic and confused, as this patient certainly could be. If we have a recent creatinine to prove which way it's going, then it's easy. But in a patient without other symptoms, we just find this high creatinine, my perspective, and there isn't really much data to go on for this, is to manage the blood pressure as an outpatient and have good follow-up. So I probably wouldn't send them to the family doctor because, you know, I'm sending a fax to somewhere and crossing my fingers. I would arrange follow-up, in my case, in an internal medicine clinic that we have in our uh, hospital where I can guarantee that there's going to be an appointment within a couple of days. And I actually have an appointment time to give to the patient and they can get their creatinine checked then to make sure I'm on the right track or if things change, worse, obviously come on back. So for those patients, I'm actually comfortable sending them as long as I know they have good follow-up, assuming they don't have glaring signs of a hypertensive emergency. But each practitioner needs to decide what is a hypertensive emergency in the setting of high blood pressure and an elevated creatinine. You can certainly get fooled. I think there there's some things that can point you in the right direction. So if you look at the urine and you've got nephrotic levels of proteinuria, uh, if you've got an active sediment, that points to acute 
uh, if there's evidence of an autoimmune hemolytic anemia. So again, this is a person you want to do CBC and everything else in, or if they've got three or grade three or four retinopathy, this is all acute related renal injury, and that would mandate some targeting of the blood pressure. If you have none of that and the patient looks well, it becomes tougher. You know, I have to say I have faced a situation a few times when people came in with very high blood pressures and elevated creatinines, and I have not sent them home. I've referred them because there were too many unanswered questions. I mean, the other thing is on ultrasound, people with acute renal injury will have larger kidneys and people with kind of chronic renal dysfunction will have smaller kidneys. Mm-hmm. But I can't tell you how, how discriminating these are. This is one of the areas that I'm a little bit more cautious with. Um, I mean, the other thing is that these are people that probably, even if they're chronic, they're going to have to have an ACE started and introducing that is going to be a little bit challenging. So even though I don't always jump on the pressure, I'm very reluctant to send them home from the emerge. Okay, so the bottom line is if you're presented with a patient who has a high blood pressure, their creatinine is 300, let's say, that needs to be addressed for sure. But we probably shouldn't be starting those patients on medications right away because they need further workup to see whether they have uh, renal artery stenosis. They might need an ultrasound. So maybe the bottom line or summary message is that with these people with hypertension and renal dysfunction, you have to individualizing decision-making based on how acute you think it is, ancillary findings of illness, and the absolute level of the creatinine. So as you've heard, there's no real good answers when it comes to dealing with a patient with a high creatinine and a high blood pressure with an unknown cause. What you do depends on the patient's previous renal function, whether they have symptoms of uremia, if their urine has nephrotic syndrome levels of protein and sediment, or if they have grade 3 or 4 retinopathy, for example, then you know that this is probably acute renal failure, which needs to be attended to immediately. If they have none of these features of acute renal failure, you probably should not be starting these patients on an antihypertensive in the eMERGE because you still don't know if they might have something like renal artery stenosis, which would be a contraindication to starting ACE inhibitors, for example. These patients really need an internist. The bottom line with renal failure and high blood pressure, like Dr. Yaffe said, is that you need to individualize decision-making on how acute you think it is ancillary findings, and the absolute level of the creatinine. Many of these patients will require admission for further workup. Case number five is a 64-year-old woman who comes in by ambulance with the chief complaint of shortness of breath in the early morning. She's rushed into the recess bay, and you're called in. The patient looks very tachypneic, restless, and in acute distress, sitting up in the stretcher. She's unable to answer questions because of her extreme shortness of breath. Her blood pressure is 190 on 120. Her heart rate is 120 and irregular. Her respiratory rate is 32, and her O2 sat is 88% on a mask. Her JVP is elevated at 10 centimeters, and she has crackles up to the tip of the scapula, and you think you can hear an S3 as well as a mid-systolic murmur at the apex. Extremities are cool with thready pulses, but without edema. You order up some BiPAP and you give her a few sprays of nitro while the nurse is getting the IV nitroglycerin ready. You later find out that she's been admitted several times with CHF and that she was celebrating her birthday at a restaurant the night prior. Her chest x-ray shows diffuse pulmonary edema. So way back in episode four with Eric Klotowski and Brian Steinhardt, we talked about pulmonary edema in the setting of high blood pressure and the amazing efficacy of BiPAP and high-dose IV nitroglycerin if the patient's really sick with a high pressure. This is such an important point that I just wanted to discuss it again. Dr. Yaffe, can you review for us how we should be giving IV nitroglycerin in this setting and why we should be using such high doses? Sure. The 
basic teaching, and I think Claire already uh, mentioned this, is that you really don't get good afterload reduction with nitroglycerin until you get up to intravenous doses of at least 60 to 80 micrograms per minute. So IV nitroglycerin, you need to get up there quickly to get the effect you want to want to have. This has led some people to advocate giving bolus IV nitroglycerin, and I know there's a couple of references, older studies where they they gave people boluses of couple of milligrams. I'd like to reference maybe a different study. This goes back to 1977 in Germany, and they they actually gave people sublingual nitroglycerin, but they gave uh, doses in the in the area of like two and a half, two point four milligrams. So rather than spraying a couple of sprays in in the sick patients, I'll give them six sprays off the bat. The nurses will normally say how many, and I'll say six, and they'll say how many, and I'll say six. But certainly the sick patients who are very hypertensive, while you're getting that IV nitroglycerin ready, give them lots of sublingual nitro. And they repeated this every five minutes. So that I find that in most of my patients, by the time that IV nitro even hits the bedside, they're starting to get an effect. So use it, use it frequently and use high doses. But I think we're way underdosing with sublingual nitro. Clearly there's a role for IV, but it does take some time to get going. I don't have a lot of personal experience giving bolus IV nitro. I know people have given it, but I find it's usually not necessary. And then in conjunction with that, uh, early use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is key. I really think that congestive heart failure with severe hypertension is is its own kind of an animal because really all we're really trying to do is improve oxygenation and decrease afterload a little bit and things get better on their own. So we're not really targeting a specific blood pressure. And in fact, a lot of these people within a very, very short period of time are sitting with very nice blood pressures or with blood pressures lower than you might even want. And we end up turning off things rather than adding other things. So it shouldn't all be semantics, but the emergency is not the hypertension. The emergency is the afterload reduction that you need. It's a great example of where you focus on the patient and not on the numbers. Absolutely. Do you find, Dr. Yaffe, that if you've given your sublingual nitro and you've had to start your IV nitro drip and the patient's still not clinically improving... Do you find that you ever have to go to a second medication? And if you do, what medication would that be? So you're getting into a little bit of controversy now. I have to say with these patients, I do give some furosemide. There's been a little bit of discussion about the use of furosemide in these in this population. But I think the message with furosemide is don't give it without vasodilator treatment and don't just give lots. So I'll give a dose. And then there's been you know, some studies on ACE inhibitors on IV ACE inhibitors. I mean, the concern with IV ACE inhibitors is if they're having an MI and if you make them hypotensive, they do worse. I have used it in the old days a little bit. We don't have an IV preparation, so I've used sublingual captopril, but I have to tell you, it's been a long time since I've needed it. I think with the combination of nitrates and uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, the vast majority get better. On to case number six. A 48-year-old man presents to the ED by ambulance with a sudden onset of isolated, severe epigastric pain of two hours duration. His blood pressure was 230 on 130 on arrival, with a heart rate of 110. The rest of his vitals were normal. He admitted to some shortness of breath and mild nausea, but no vomiting. His bowel movements were normal, as was his urine, and he didn't report a fever. He had no surgical or medical history and specifically denied any history of heart disease, peptic ulcer disease, pancreatitis, or gallstones. He denied alcohol or illicit drugs. He appeared uncomfortable. His chest was clear. Heart sounds were normal with no murmurs. Abdomen was mildly tender in the epigastrium with no peritoneal signs. His ECG showed sinus tachy with nonspecific ST changes. He was given ASA, a few sprays of nitro, and 4 milligrams of morphine while waiting for the troponin, 
D-dimer liver enzymes and amylase, as well as the portable chest X-ray. But his blood pressure didn't budge, so he was started on IV nitroglycerin. The X-ray came back, and the emergency doctor noticed a loss of the aortopulmonary window. The trope liver enzymes and amylase came back negative, but his D-dimer was 2,700. He was sent for a CTA chest, and lo and behold, there was a type B aortic dissection. He was given 20 milligram bolus of labetalol, which was repeated every 10 minutes, but his blood pressure still hardly budged. So he was started on nitroprusside while maintaining a labetalol drip. Still, his pressure hardly budged. At this point, the patient was maxed out on labetalol at 300 milligrams and maxed out on nitroprusside at 2 mics per minute. Dr. Atsuma, what would be your next drug of choice in this case? Just one point before I get on to that. Uh, many of the listeners may not realize that your D-dimer can go up with a dissection, so I just want to highlight that. It was very consistent with a dissection, the D-dimer of 2,700. So looking at this patient who hasn't had any change in their blood pressure despite the interventions, the first thing I would want to do is ensure that I am correct. So do I have an art line, and is it functioning well? Because in all these patients, you should be putting in an art line, and you want to put it in the right radial artery because you have a dissection, and you're going to get an abnormal Uh, result depending on where you put it. And the most likely correct result is going to come from your right radial artery. Also, potentially, they may need some surgery later on, so you want to keep that in mind as well. So you have your art line, and you make sure that you really are not making a difference, and it's not just a false uh, level. While you're at it, ask your nurse to put in a Foley uh, catheter for a urometer, because later on you're going to see if you have organ perfusion uh, to the kidneys. You should have two large bore IVs in, and they should be functioning well. Uh, nitroprusside can go interstitial and can be very damaging to the veins, uh, so you want to ensure that that's correct as well. So you've been given the labetalol, and you can max out at 300, and then you're going to add on the nitroprusside, and it sounds like you're already up to two mics per minute per kilo. At that point, you might want to also give more morphine for pain and anxiety because that's another uh, reason for the blood pressure to stay up. And then you want to look and see how effective the heart rate is given that labetalol. So are you at the max, and do you have more room to go? So can you add esmolol onto the patient's labetalol to get the blood pressure down even further? And so if I wasn't already at 60 or 50 or even 40, I would probably add on more esmolol would be my choice in order to get even lower down. Now, in some patients, you can't use a beta blocker. In those patients, I would probably go to diltiazem as an aside. Unfortunately, nicardipine and clividipine, which may be options for international listeners, are not available in Canada, but those uh, would be something else that you could go to if you had that drug available to you. Okay. It turns out that this was my case, and that's exactly what I did. I started the patient on cardizem, and it was like magic. Their pressure just came down, and their, and their uh, symptoms resolved. But unfortunately, by that time, uh, I noticed in the Foley bag that his urine had turned brown. And so I was a little bit late, but I did the best I could. So here, let's review a little bit about patients who present with a really high blood pressure and chest pain, talking about ACS and dissection. Sometimes you're wondering whether the patient could have an aortic dissection or an MI, and you're not sure. You should really be avoiding rapid reduction of blood pressure until you have a confirmation that it's a dissection, because if they have an MI, which is way more common, you can cause more cardiac ischemia by rapidly reducing the blood pressure below their baseline. If you do confirm aortic dissection, the 2010 AHA guidelines recommend that you should focus on reducing aortic wall stress by controlling both heart rate and blood pressure. And so a beta blocker like labetalol or esmolol is the antihypertensive of choice to target a heart rate of 60 and a systolic blood pressure of 110, with a calcium channel blocker being an alternative in patients with contraindications to beta blockers. Second line is a vasodilator like nitroprusside, for example, but that should only be started once the heart rate is under control to avoid reflex tachycardia. If you've maxed out on a beta blocker and nitroprusside, then our experts recommend a calcium channel blocker like nifedipine, or if you don't have that, diltiazem. One pearl that's mentioned in the guidelines 
is to avoid beta blockers if there's a clinical suspicion for aortic regurgitation or pericardial tamponade. So in a patient with a type A dissection who has a new aortic regurgitation murmur, i.e. the dissection has gone retrograde into the aortic root to cause aortic regurgitation and then progress to pericardial tamponade, which is usually what kills them, if the patient does have a new aortic regurgitation murmur, you should avoid beta blockers. Case number seven. You're in the middle of an overnight shift when the triage nurse pulls you aside to tell you that they have a 34-year-old woman who's pregnant at 36 weeks gestational age with a blood pressure of 185 on 110 who's complaining of headache, drowsiness, blurry vision, and belly pain. She's had no prenatal care. So Dr. Atsuma, the first thing we think about in a patient like this is preeclampsia. Can you just review for us what the definition of preeclampsia is? Certainly, because it has changed relatively recently. So this is a patient who is beyond 20 weeks gestation with a systolic blood pressure greater than 160 or a diastolic blood pressure greater than 110, along with proteinuria greater than 0.3 grams in a 24-hour specimen, um, or there's a protein to creatinine ratio greater than 0.3, or for us in emergency room, the dipstick is 1 plus um, if you can't get quantitative measurement, which of course you can't in the emergency department. So if your dipstick's one plus protein and you have a patient who's 20 weeks or more gestation with a pressure of 160 uh, over 110 or more, you have preeclampsia. Now, if they don't have proteinuria, that doesn't mean they don't have preeclampsia because the latest definitions do include other criteria, including a platelet count of less than 100,000, uh, an elevated serum creatinine that was double the previous, LFTs that are elevated twice normal, uh, pulmonary edema or cerebral or visual symptoms. So if they have any of those things but don't have proteinuria, you can still diagnose preeclampsia with that. Now, eclampsia is essentially the same thing when seizures have occurred. So now that we know what the definition of preeclampsia is, blood pressure of over 160 over 110 with protein of 1 plus on the dipstick, or if they don't have protein on the dipstick, then any of the features of the HELP syndrome. That defines preeclampsia. And if they are having a seizure, then it's eclampsia. Dr. Yaffe, since we're talking about hypertensive emergencies, let's concentrate on specifically managing the blood pressure in this patient. So her blood pressure is 185 on 110. She's got quite obvious preeclampsia. So as Claire said, um, the target is about 160 over 110. And I think in this patient, the drug of choice is uh, labetalol. Uh, hydralazine is perfectly acceptable, but probably second line drug for these people. This is somebody who's going to need magnesium as well for seizure prophylaxis. And certainly magnesium in and of itself is not an effective hypotensive agent, but I think we need to make sure we realize that the combination of magnesium with a, a specific pressure-reducing agent, those can both affect blood pressure. So you just have to keep a good watch on what your pressure is doing. And I, uh, I think the usual target supply, um, not more than a 25%, uh, 20 to 25% drop in MAP in the first hour. And so the approach for hydralazine, if you do want to use it, is 5 milligrams IV slow push over 1 to 2 minutes. You wait for 20 minutes and see what kind of response you get. And if you need to give more, you give 5 to 10 based on how much of a response you got. Maximum is 20 milligrams. And for our U.S. listeners, while labetalol is still first line, there is some evidence out there that nicardipine has been shown to be equally efficacious at reducing blood pressure in patients with preeclampsia. So let's review here the management of high blood pressure in a patient with eclampsia or severe preeclampsia. If a patient's seizing in front of you with eclampsia or has severe preeclampsia, which is defined by a blood pressure of greater than 160 over 110 with 3 plus protein on the urine dipstick or with pulmonary edema or persistent headache or with epigastric pain or impaired liver function or thrombocytopenia, Give an IV loading dose of 6 grams of magnesium sulfate, followed by 2 grams per hour IV. If you don't have IV access, you can start off with IM magnesium until the IV access is established. The patient who you've given magnesium to should be monitored for loss of reflexes and respiratory depression, and the drip should be stopped if you see signs of hypermagnesemia. 
you can reverse the effects of hypermagnesemia with one amp of IV calcium gluconate given slowly. Magnesium does have vasodilatory effects, and so it can decrease the blood pressure, especially if the magnesium is stopping a seizure. So if a patient is seizing in front of you, first give magnesium to stop the seizure, then check the blood pressure, and if still over 160 over 110, then give IV labetalol. If you drop the blood pressure too quickly, you can cause hypoperfusion to the fetus. And don't forget that definitive treatment of eclampsia and severe preeclampsia is delivery of the fetus. So call OBSGYNE and the anesthetist and get the patient to the obstetric suite ASAP. Remember that hydralazine has been demoted to second line after labetalol because it takes longer to work and it has very unpredictable effects on the blood pressure. Next, we're going to move on to blood pressure control in subarachnoid hemorrhage. Case number eight, a 43-year-old man comes in by ambulance with an abrupt onset 10 out of 10 occipital headache that he's never experienced before while he was riding his bicycle. He's vomited twice and is photophobic. On exam, he's curled up in a ball on the stretcher, complaining of severe headache. His neck is sore on flexion. His blood pressure is 180 on 110, and the rest of his vitals are within normal limits. He's given 6 milligrams of IV morphine and sent immediately to the CT scanner. The CT comes back showing an obvious subarachnoid hemorrhage. When he gets back from CT, his blood pressure is still 180 on 110. Dr. Atsuma, what do the guidelines tell us about how we should manage blood pressure in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage? So the American Heart Association guidelines in June of 2012 made a couple of recommendations. One of them I'll read out is between the time of subarachnoid symptom onset and aneurysm obliteration, so the time that we see these patients, blood pressure should be controlled with a titratable agent to balance the risk of stroke, hypertension-related rebleeding, and maintenance of cerebral perfusion pressure, which I'm going to return to. And the second point is the magnitude of blood pressure control to reduce the risk of rebleeding has not been established, but a decrease in systolic blood pressure to less than 160 is quote, reasonable. So really, when I read the literature, we're between a rock and a hard place on these patients. There was one study which I think summarizes it very well. It was a study done in 1990, and it looked at 134 patients with confirmed subarachnoid hemorrhage. 80 of them had their blood pressure brought down, their diastolic blood pressure brought down to below 100, and 54 did not have that done for them. And in the patients who had their diastolic blood pressure brought down below 100, they had half the rate of re-bleeding, but they had twice the rate of ischemic strokes. So it's, if it's not one, it's the other. So the idea here is these patients are at high risk of re-bleeding, and if the blood pressure remains high, then, then they're probably going to re-bleed, and that's going to really um, affect their prognosis. But they need that blood pressure in order to perfuse, and they have that penumbra of brain tissue that, that can be salvaged, if there's enough blood pressure to it, and if you drop it too low, then you're going to have ischemia. So too low, you're going to ischemia. Too high, you're going to get rebleeding. And in a patient at 180, you know, I'm I might I don't even know that I would bring it down. You know, it's so close to the 160, you could drop it too low and have something else happen. And really the evidence for it isn't great. If I was going to, I would certainly have an art line in and go very, very slowly. If they're looking at you and awake, like this gentleman was, their cerebral perfusion pressure is probably adequate and you could lower it. But if their decreased level of consciousness, perhaps it's because their cerebral perfusion pressure isn't enough, and the last thing you'd want to do is reduce their blood pressure. But you know what? When we see someone who's got a decreased level of consciousness, the first thing we want to do is intervene and do something. So call your neurosurgeon. And the other things you should focus on if you need to do something is to normalize everything. So if they have any acidosis, like a bicarb less than 20, uh, if they're hyperglycemic, a glucose greater than 10, if they have a fever, you want to fix all the things because the uh, more equilibrium you can establish, the better they're going to do if you feel you need to do something. So, And then at some point, uh, nimotapine is going to come into the picture, but as I mentioned earlier, that's for several days afterward. 
the risk of vasospasm doesn't occur until at least three days afterwards, so you don't need to be thinking about giving nimodipine in the emergency department unless you've held on to them for three days. And again, to clarify, nimodipine is not an antihypertensive. It decreases intracranial vasospasm. Exactly. On to case number nine. A 40-year-old man with a past medical history of hypertension and hypothyroidism was brought into the ED by ambulance with increasing confusion over the last four hours, according to his wife. When you go see him, he appeared slightly agitated with a GCS of 13. His blood pressure was 240 on 140, with a normal heart rate, respiratory rate, and temp. Glucose was normal. He had no focal neurologic deficits, and fundi were difficult to visualize. An ECG showed signs of LVH. Sound familiar? Well, this was exactly the same case as we had with hypertensive encephalopathy, except this time the CT came back showing a massive intracerebral hemorrhage, just to drive home the point that ICH often looks a lot like hypertensive encephalopathy and is way more common. We've talked about subarachnoid hemorrhage. Let's move on to a different kind of head bleed, and that's intracerebral hemorrhage, ICH. Dr. Yaffe, What do our listeners need to know about managing blood pressure in ICH in light of the recent INTERACT-2 trial? Well, let's come back to INTERACT-2 in a minute. I think the background is that there's always been a fear that in people with uh, an intracerebral hemorrhage and hypertension, if you left the blood pressure where where it was, you were going to get more bleeding, expansion of the hematoma, more injury to the brain, or at a minimum, you were going to get some local pressure effects that would cause problem. Having said that, despite the theoretical risks, uh, the search for evidence that this is the case has never been productive. Uh, You know, there's some evidence that a high blood pressure on admission or a really low blood pressure on admission correlates with worse outcome, but we really have had no evidence at all that lowering blood pressure in a hypertensive patient with a bleed uh, improves outcome. So then we come to INTERACT-2. So there was INTERACT-1, which uh, looked at hypertensive patients with bleeds and found that quickly lowering the blood pressure did uh, slow the growth of hematoma size. However, uh, INTERACT-2 was just published. I, I think the study has a lot of Problem. So what they did was they, they had a lot of group, they had a lot of patients, about 3,000 patients, who had a spontaneous uh, ICH uh, within the previous six hours. And they took one group and they rapidly lowered their blood pressure to a target systolic of less than a 140. That was within an hour. And then they took the other group and they had guideline recommended treatment. And we'll talk about that, but it's a lot more permissive. And What they found is subject to interpretation. In their primary endpoint, they really found that the rapid lowering group did no better than the standard group. They did an analysis with an ordinal analysis, and we could sit and talk about whether this is fair game or not, but they came out with an opinion saying, well, we didn't harm anybody, and maybe they'll do better. And so this study was promoted as evidence then you that you can safely and rapidly lower blood pressure. Uh, a lot of us disagree with this and say what the study shows is that there's no benefit to lowering the blood pressure. A lot of other issues, they kind of used a mixture of BP lowering regimens. It's hard to know how valid these are to our population because most of the patients came from one particular country. The time to treatment in the standard group, there was a bit of a lag. And the real big thing is that the purported mechanism that it that it decreases hematoma growth, in fact, was not shown in Interact 2. So um, for me, Interact 2 does not change my practice at all. I would refer you to the AHA guidelines for ICH. There's about four recommendations with one new one added on more recently. It's important to look at the wording for all of these recommendations because every one of them says consider. So they don't mandate treatment. What that says for me is, I have time to think about this. You can bet your life, if you choose to, that when these patients hit the door, the first thing that's going to happen is that somebody's going to come to you and tell you, 
I've got a patient who's got a really, really, really elevated blood pressure and would you like to do something about that? And here I'm where Claire is on the subarachnoid hemorrhage talk. I would look for everything else. I would confirm my diagnosis. I would treat pain. I would treat urinary retention. And if the pressure was still very, very, very elevated, I would consider treatment, but I would consider it. The patients that you might think are most in need of treatment, you have to be most careful with. So the patient with an altered level of consciousness, these are the people who might have raised ICP. And these are the people who you might want to forego treatment until you can get some ICP monitoring and at least have a sense of what you're doing. Because if you drop the pressure in those people, you can do big time harm. The AHA guidelines give you three categories. If you've got a very high systolic blood pressure, greater than 200, or if the MAP is greater than 150, that's when you would want to consider aggressive reduction of blood pressure with a continuous IV infusion. Uh, But if you're going to do that, uh, you have to make sure you're checking your patient every few minutes to make sure they're not getting worse. And if there's any sign of deterioration, you want to turn off your medication. For me, the important caveat is consider that this is something you do after a little bit of thought and after you've corrected everything else that you might be able to do that might be driving the blood pressure up. The second category is the patient with severe hypertension who's altered and whom we suspect that there's raised ICP. And this is probably the group that you really want to treat, but this is a group that they would tell us we should only do this with ICP monitoring. So this is the one... Get them monitored before you start messing with the blood pressure. And then they have a third group with a little bit of a lower blood pressure, so systolic 180, MAP greater than 130. And they say if you have this group with a lower pressure, no evidence of elevation of ICP in that they're fully alert, then you can consider a more modest reduction using, again, intravenous medications. I think they put this in because... Nobody knows what to do, right? There's a real urge to treat these people, but again, slowly, gently uh, reevaluating your patients quickly and very modest targets. It's important to remember if you're going to lower the blood pressure in these groups, there's no specific target. If you want to use the Interact 2 trial as a guide, there's likely no harm in targeting your systolic blood pressure to 140, but maybe no benefit either. And I would use labetalol. Uh, I think in the very altered patient, regardless of the pressure, I think I'm going to get my neurosurgeons involved or my ICU involved and talk about getting some uh, intracranial pressure monitoring in. And that's most of it. I would not, despite uh, the new recommendations do give us permission to rapidly lower the blood pressure, but I'm not convinced that that's ready for prime time. Touché. Last thing I'll say about it is that there's another study coming out, attached to which may tell us something more about that. So let's review here patients that come in with a high blood pressure and CNS disease. For hypertensive encephalopathy, ICH, and subarachnoid hemorrhage, avoid nitroprusside because it causes a relative increase in cerebral blood pressure and a shunt effect to the peripheral circulation. This decreases cerebral blood flow and may produce greater than anticipated reduction in cerebral perfusion, thereby increasing the risk of cerebral ischemia in the watershed areas of the brain. For subarachnoid hemorrhage as well as ICH, the American Heart Association guidelines for subarachnoid hemorrhage says that the target systolic blood pressure for patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage and high BP should be about 160, but there's no real good evidence for this. Again, if you drop the blood pressure too fast or too low, you run the risk of cerebral ischemia. And if you leave it too high, then you'll run the risk of worsening bleeding. So get an art line, use nifedipine, or if you don't have that, labetalol, go slow and monitor the patient really carefully. And in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage, don't forget to address all the other things that you can do while the patient's waiting for the neurosurgeon. That is correct any acidosis, hyperglycemia, or fever. What about lowering blood pressure in ICH? First, with patients who are altered and you suspect a raised ICP, you should especially be careful lowering their blood pressure because they'd be at high risk for ischemia if you drop the blood pressure too low. With this in mind, 
the AHA guidelines divide patients into three groups. First are the patients with a systolic blood pressure of greater than 200 or a MAP greater than 150. And in these patients, it says consider lowering the blood pressure with continuous IV infusion under close monitoring. The second group are those patients that you suspect a raised ICP in who have severely elevated blood pressure. And in those patients, they suggest getting an ICP monitor before you even start any IV antihypertensives. The third group of patients is those without evidence of raised ICP and a moderately high blood pressure. That is a systolic blood pressure of 180 or a MAP of 130. In those patients, they suggest considering a more modest reduction using IV antihypertensives. So there's no specific blood pressure target for ICH, although 160 seems to be reasonable. And the INTERACT-2 trial shows us that it is safe to decrease the blood pressure to as low as 140, although there's no benefit shown in terms of hematoma growth or mortality. Again, our experts recommend using labetalol to reduce blood pressure in patients with ICH, or if you have it in your eMERGE, nifedipine. So I hope to see some of you this month at the Whistler Conference where I'll be giving a couple talks. I'll also be giving a talk at the EMU, that's the Emergency Medicine Update Conference, which is the biggest conference in Canada in May. So I hope to see you all there. So remember, if you like the podcast, please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and write a little note about why you like us. We'd love to hear your feedback. So please, on the comment section of any of the episode pages, speak your mind. Let us know what you think about the episode. And also let us know what you think we should be doing with the new website design. We've got all kinds of great ideas and we're really excited about the launch, which will hopefully be around April of this year. And for this month's quote of the month, we have one from Robert McKee, an incredible writer. True character is revealed in the choices a human being makes under pressure. The greater the pressure, the deeper the revelation the truer the choice of the character's essential nature. And that about wraps it up for this month's episode. So until next time, take it easy.